Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we are joined by Richard Beck. Richard Beck is a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, and he's a popular blogger and speaker. He's author of several books, including Reviving Old Scratch, Unclean, and Stranger God. He's a frequent guest on the popular Christian podcast Newsworthy with Norsworthy, and he writes about a wide variety of topics, and get this, they're about things like ethics, aliens, Scooby-Doo, philosophy, the devil, and the theology of Johnny Cash. One of the episodes in the past, we talked about spiritual warfare. It was episode seven, and we actually discussed Richard's book, Reviving Old Scratch. And so if you want to check out that episode, it'd be great to do that. Richard's not a libertarian, but we wanted to have him on the podcast because as a follower of his blog, I noticed that he lives the way of Jesus and he per- practices direct care for those on the margin and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So Richard, uh, I I wanted you to come on the podcast and tell us how you how did you meet Jesus in prison? How I met Jesus in prison? Yeah. You know, a couple years ago I'd written a book called Unclean, which is this book about kind of the psychology of hospitality and I was doing podcasts and interviews uh with with different people about the book and uh, welcoming people how we do it, our obstacles, and people began asking questions about how I was living into those practices of welcome and hospitality. And I realized that as I kind of looked at my life, my friendship group uh, was pretty homogeneous. I mean, all my friends kind of looked like I did. I'm a college professor, and so I was hanging out with other kind of college professors. And I just realized that uh, I needed to kind of practice what I what I preached. And so I went to a, a gentleman at my church who was leading a Bible study out at a maximum security prison north of town. And asked if I could be a, a part of that. And I went out there kind of hoping into the promise of Matthew 25, where Jesus says, when we welcome the prisoner, we welcome him. And uh, you might not think that a maximum security prison is a place where you'll find Jesus, but like every Monday night when I'm out there with about 50 inmates, um, Jesus surprises me all the time. You know, and one of the things you mentioned in the book Stranger God, which is uh, was released relatively recently, and it's kind of the topic of of our conversation here, which is about showing hospitality. And you know, I really admire you admitting that as a scholar, as somebody who writes scholarly work and publishes things that are a little bit more in that direction, that you admitted in the book that you were guilty of saying, yeah, I don't really know what this means. And you wanted to kind of resolve that problem. You took personal responsibility to resolve that problem. And it, and the prison uh, situation was one of those ways. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a trouble with academics across the board, even Christian academics or even Christian authors and speakers is that you can kind of reduce Christianity to kind of a verbal game. Um, it's all about words, saying the right words, saying the right words on social media, saying the right words on this podcast, I'll try to do. And, and you can kind of get caught up in an illusion that if you're performing verbally well, you know, if, you're, if, you, have, if you hold all the right kind of political and spiritual opinions, then you're right. a good person. And I've, I've really tried to live into this idea that Christianity has got to be uh, behavioral, like where you put your body in the world is as important as where you place your words. Well, yeah, and that's really tough. You know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, I find myself wanting to embrace other people. You talk about the will to embrace, and it's it's tough if you don't have friends who are on the margins. And if you don't have friends who are on the margins, you have the problem of going to the margins, or maybe for some people, finding the margins. And prison's one way of doing that. There's, of course, others, a way of doing that. Why is it, why do you think it's hard for us to open up to strangers? Why does that problem, why does that exist? Well, I mean, I think you're hitting on two different things. One one is, 
when we talk about hospitality, we often like to tell these stories like the one I've just told about myself, uh, like me going out to the margins, me being out at a prison. And I also tell stories in the book uh, about worshiping and spending life at Freedom Fellowship, which is a mission church um, that I'm part of where we walk alongside and break bread with um, people on the socioeconomic margins. So lots of poor and intermittently homeless and people dealing with addictions and, and such um, uh, are a part of that church. So that's another kind of marginalized community I spend time with. And so when we talk about hospitality, we often tell those kinds of stories and we'll often lay the label radical on top of it. So these are displays of radical hospitality, but a lot of us don't, or can't do that because our our lives are just uh, swamped. We're just too busy. I mean, when I talk to churches about hospitality, and I ask church leaders like, "What's the number one hospitality problem that they have?" It's uh, busyness. People just don't have margin or time. And and so, Stranger God was written to kind of address that. It wasn't it wasn't to call people to kind of heroic acts of hospitality, as we would typically perceive the word heroism, but it's calling people to kind of radical acts of hospitality within the margins and within the spaces of their lives as they currently have them. And there's, and as you explore that in the book, you'll discover that there are ample opportunities to welcome the people that you're already around in your life. Um, people that there are on the margins, if not on the socioeconomic margins, they are on the margins of your affections. And I think you're, you're your point about why is it we have trouble welcoming the people that we see in the world around us comes down to emotions. Uh, a lot of our obstacles of hospitality are social, psychological. We have lots of emotional reactions to people, lots of feelings from fear to contempt to revulsion that causes us to push people away um, in our workplaces, in our churches, on social media, and on and on it goes. So we don't really have, you know, the love your enemies. We, we don't really have enemies. Some of us might have enemies, but by and large, we, we really don't have them. So the people that annoy us, you talk a little bit about that in your book. What, what kind of people are the ones that are, they're not our enemies, but they're also those who, you know, emotionally trigger us and we just kind of, we lean away. Yeah. My, uh, I have a colleague here on campus, Randy Harris. He likes to say that we don't have enemies, but we have irritants in our life. <laughs> and I like that. And, and I think we can all identify that. Yeah, we might not have somebody kind of malevolently, malevolently seeking our doom, although we might have somebody at work who's like actively trying to undermine us, like a legitimate enemy. But most of us have people that just uh, kind of get in our way. Um, or we're feeling angry in our in our political climate at somebody. And so maybe not enemies, but we often have very, very strong emotional reactions. And I mean, and you guys wade into political waters on this podcast, so you know how much emotion is involved in political debates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and those emotions, I think for most of us, tend to be our greatest obstacles to hospitality. Yeah, we might have enemies. Uh, or we might not have enemies, I'm saying, but but uh, I think if anybody takes a minute to kind of survey their feelings as they scroll through social media or watch cable news, uh, would realize that they got a lot of feelings about huge chunks of the world within America and outside of America. And those feelings, at least in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes as kind of affectional murder. He says, hmm. you know, if you have contempt for... Uh, for people. That is the equivalent of murder. And and so I think a lot of us struggle with that, that affectional killing that is involved in the way we feel disdain or contempt or disgust or just fear for large chunks of the world. Yeah, so maybe, maybe uh, Eugene Peterson update the message, you know, with, uh, with Jesus saying, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who irritate you. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> that, might be that would be awesome. <laughs> At least that's a that's a good uh, updated a paraphrase of a paraphrase, perhaps, or an application. No, I think that's important because I mean, a lot of my life, I I do work from home a lot, and the people who quote unquote annoy me or irritate me are typically online, and they don't get to see my reaction, and I don't get. You know, if they were in person, I probably would be slightly less irritated because I'd know them, or I would I would be you know socially appropriate. The other, the other thing that I think you touch on is those emotions that we feel contempt for somebody. And is, does that relate to the disgust uh, phenomenon, the mechanism of disgust? 
Yeah, so I begin the I begin the book by talking about kind of the the psychology of disgust and contamination, which might seem like a really weird transition in this conversation. But if you spend any time with the literature on moral psychology, like some of your listeners might be aware of the work of Jonathan Haidt uh, in his book The Righteous Mind, they'll they'll know that uh, purity and disgust are emotions that often regulate the social world uh, and the moral world. And we often will use words like icky or revolting or even disgusting to think about human peoples, uh, groups we find that we don't like. And we often, in particularly in religious contexts, think of sin or moral failings as forms of contamination. And so you kind of quickly realize that this kind of psychology of uncleanliness is used to, to create a kind of a repulsive impulse towards human beings that are engaged in activities we find morally uh, morally wrong. Um, contempt, psychologically, is very much related to disgust. Psychologists will, will point out how they both kind of share um, a uh, an olfactory, that is to say, uh, a wrinkling of the nose. They both have that similar kind of sneering um, when you just look at raw displays of disgust in the laboratory in the world. So it's a similar emotional mechanism. Contempt, though, tends to be more hierarchical where you are looking down. So what is revolting to you is something beneath you or a lowering. Either way, disgust or contempt, um, psychologists describe as very dehumanizing emotions because there is a kind of pushing people away and there is a, a lowering or a dehumanizing them. So, And I think that's why Jesus kind of takes aim at contempt is because he realizes it's a really toxic emotion for for relationships, uh, in fact, some research done in the marital uh, realm has has displayed has shown that uh, contempt is the emotion contempt for one's spouse is the emotion most predictive of subsequent divorce. Mm. So it's a really toxic emotion because of its dehumanizing, hierarchical nature. Do you think that plays out in the political spectrum for people who aren't necessarily on the margins? I mean, right now we have a you know, with Trump as president, we have a, there's a lot of contempt for this person, for him. And there's also a lot of contempt for, um, you, you, I guess, the, the ultra wealthy, uh, who nobody would consider them as quote unquote on the margins or uh, anything like that. I mean, obviously, you know, wealthy people need the love of Jesus too. But do, do you think that plays out on a societal level as well? Oh, yeah, I think across the board. Um I think I think contempt is 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 the emotion that dominates our political discourse now, where uh, on the left or the right or or however you place yourself, that there is a group of people um, that that we feel contemptuous towards, and so so you might have contempt for people kind of taking advantage of the welfare state. So you might see those emotions on the right, but then on the left, you're going to see kind of like you've described this this contempt for the the uber rich. So that kind of comes back to a phrase that you mentioned earlier, this will to embrace. The way I describe it in the book is that the will to embrace, taken from the theologian Miroslav Volf, is, is the embracing of a person's humanity prior to any other social or moral sorting or judgment that we might uh, uh, use for a person. And so whenever you're talking about, for example, rich people, you've already kind of lost track of their humanity because you're already seeing them through some sort of labeling. They're wealthy. Or if you see some see somebody on welfare, you're already seeing them as through that filter of, of, of being on welfare. Same way if you see anybody through the label of libertarian or liberal or conservative or Trump supporter or Hillary supporter or uh, male or female or gay or straight or Christian or Muslim or American versus Russian. I mean, the, the minute you sort people through their through the group filter, the stereotypes and the bias and the contempt is already well in play. And once that happens, uh, it's really hard to get that conversation back on track because it's already become emotional. And it, within milliseconds, the conversation has become really emotional because you have feelings about these groups. You have attitudes about these these groups. And so the fight for hospitality, as I describe it in the book, is primarily this affectional fight to, to see people's humanity before we see them through any other social filter. One of the, one of the things that libertarians often 
uh, try to do is think about the humanity of people before we think about the kind of group that we're in. I know Ron Paul said that racism is just basically the ugly form of collectivism, where we we treat people based on the you know what we see on the outside rather than the individual that that's there. One of the things that stood out to me in Stranger God, and you kind of mentioned this at the end of the book, was that we do change the world individual to individual, and you know it, it's easy to kind of call that a you know a very low view of changing the world. I mean, most of us want to be these, or aspire, not when I say most of us aspire to it, but many people think of, you know, we're going to change the world by aspiring to, you know, for us to be an institution that helps Christians uh, embrace liberty or, you know, to uh, start, start a company that's going to transform a certain industry or something like that. But what you found was something that was a lot more personal and one, a lot more uh, doable, I, I should say, because, you know, we read books like Radical or and we hear testimonies of people that, you know, they've gone out and they've changed the world. You say that we're, it fills us with both awe and dread. And I would add to that and a little bit of guilt if, if we're not even doing something to, to influence the world for the gospel or for the kingdom. What is the, tell us a little bit about the, the little way, uh, which is kind of the, the second half of your book. Um, and why was that so effective in helping you uh, in in your walk? Well, because I think, yeah, there, you mentioned a couple different temptations. Whenever we think of, you know, hospitality or, or welcoming the stranger, a couple things are tempting us. One is, and I think you mentioned this, is more and more, I think, our imaginations, particularly on the left, are, are becoming more and more politicized. Uh, that that is to say, we've lost an, a local imagination. That, that every every problem that ails us, the solution has to come from the state. And, and I think that more and more we're seeing how Christians on the left and the right, and I don't know how libertarians feel about that fight, but you, you often see it as a power struggle between the progressive Christians on the left mm-hmm. and the evangelical Christians on the right, and and. And the world's going to come out right if we can if we can take power of the state. And, and I just don't think that's an imagination that you see played out in the New Testament. I think the imagination of the early church was a very local and intimate and face to face interaction. Mm-hmm. And so I do want I do want to affirm that I, I do think the book is a call for more of a local imagination for solving our hospitality problems. Because if hospitality is fundamentally a matter of the heart, if you're not going to solve a problem like racism through a policy. And I don't think you can solve a problem like racism through policies. Then there's going to have to be a moral and spiritual uh, battle that goes on, and that's going to play out in your own intimate sphere and how you deal with that. And it's not just racism, but any sort of prejudice that we might have. There's, like we said, there's always somebody in our life that irritates us. There's always somebody in our sphere of influence that is an emotional problem for us. And welcoming that person, that struggle, um, is a large part of what I'm calling people to in the book. Which goes to the other temptation is, so if, if hospitality isn't solved through the state, then we're hit with all of these uh, Christian books and speakers that set out for us all these kind of radical displays of hospitality. And those, like I said earlier, just overwhelm us. We just don't feel like we have the time to do that. We have mortgages to pay and a job to go to and a kid's soccer game to coach uh, this evening. And so how are we going to do radical hospitality? Realizing kind of my audience uh, people with day jobs and lives who do want to be welcoming but don't know how how to fit it in. Um, I went went searching the literature on hospitality and came across this Catholic saint named Therese of Lisieux, who is really popular in Catholicism but little known in Protestantism and the spirituality of what she called her little way. And her little way is probably best described by Mother Teresa of Calcutta's summation where she says we do – none of us do great things, but we do little things with uh, great love. And so the idea of the little way is to identify somebody in our in our world, and that can be often will be for a lot of us our workplaces, but it might be on the sideline of your youth's uh, soccer game, that or it could be your church. Are you somebody. saying that people on the sidelines of your youth soccer game irritate you? <laughs> you, you can't be. So t- you got to be talking about the parents, right? <laughs> Exactly. I tell you what, one of the worst things, if you want to like be demoralized about the status of the church in America, is watch uh, Christian parents uh, in uh, go to a go to a game playing another Christian school, oh, and, and when you okay. see these two Christian schools yelling at each other, you know, it's just <laughs> really really sad. Yeah. So I think learning to love people, and then they go that, worship with each other test. in their mixed churches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, 
Yeah, it's probably, I'm talking about that kind of irritating parent, you know, who, whose kid won't pass to your kid or, you know, whose kid always pushes your kid too hard. You know, I, I think when your kids are involved, it's really hard to love people uh, very well. I've wanted to throttle uh, <laughs> six-year-olds um, as a grown man because they bump my kid. So all I have to say is the little way is just kind of identifying that person in your life who you're kind of not drawn to and making kind of an intentional practice to kind of welcome them. Therese talks about, she was a, she was a, a Carmelite nun in a convent and she talked about how she would take the time and the effort to approach and sit with uh, and speak kindly to the sisters in her world who were marginalized and ostracized, the irritants that we were talking about, the hard to get along with people. And so the little way is that uh, disciplined approaching, um, leaning in where we normally have um, leaned away. And so the way I describe it in the book is that is something all of us can do. You might not be able to go out to a maximum security prison, or you might not be able to worship at a mission church, um, wherever you are, but you can open your heart and lean in towards somebody in your immediate local context and allow for the opportunity for a surprising friendship to emerge. Um, and so I describe that as the practice of the little way of hospitality in the book. Um, and my hope is, is that it, it is, I think, a radical thing to do. Because if you think about the people in your life that you have difficulty loving, about the irritants, uh, and the people you feel a lot of contempt for, it really is pretty heroic to spend your day trying to swim against the tide of those emotions. How long did it take you in your church situation? I mean, you, you, you give examples in your book, but you know there was no sense of like, you, it took you a year or two years or three years to be comfortable leaning in instead of away. Yeah, and I, I think... Some of this, too, I should say, uh, one of the things I wish I had done more time in the book is talk about introversion and extroversion, um, because I think introverts um, struggle with this idea of approaching people. Amen and, to that. Yeah. And so, but the thing is, I'm an introvert, actually. And so, the, the, the call here isn't to become an extrovert. The, the call, because as Therese talks about it in her in her memoirs of The Little Way, she says, you know, all, all, all she was doing is giving a kind word or a smile. Now, she says that a kind word and a smile often suffice to make a sad soul bloom. And so, for me, the issue here isn't becoming really adept at small talk or becoming really the most extroverted person in the world to welcome everybody in the room. It is rather picking a location where it's hard to love, where you're not drawn, and, 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 and just being very intentional about going against the grain. It's, it, so it's not about turning an introvert into extrovert. It is about taking an inventory of how you feel about people and doing something very intentional to not be on what I call social autopilot, to just move through the world, letting your feelings push you away from some people and draw you towards other people. Because what happens if you do that, if you live your life on social autopilot, it's kind of what happened to me, which is you end up kind of just befriending people who think the way you do and then like the same things you do and you all kind of look the same because we're just attracted to sameness. So if you aren't intentional and in going against the grain, uh, then, then yeah, I think we're drawn into these clicks. And so like I like to say I, when, when I talk to churches, you know, churches are often known for being cliquish, but I don't think people wake up in the morning and go to church on Sunday morning with the goal to be cliquish and exclusive and, and, unwelcoming. It just happens naturally because nobody is paying attention. Nobody's being disciplined in getting their eyes up and looking around. So all I have to say for, for my life, it happened pretty quickly. I looked around the church one day, I mean, literally stood in the auditorium and I saw a young woman in a wheelchair at the back of the church. And she had these very big sunglasses on. And I realized uh, soon after I met her that she had sunglasses because she was blind, Christy. And I, and I said to myself, you know, if left to my own devices, I would probably seek out, you know, one of my friends here, Kyle or Bill, professors at my school, and you know, we complain about work or talk about, you know, a movie or whatever. I said, I probably wouldn't approach that woman. I don't know her. She's in a wheelchair. She's got sunglasses on. I'm just not drawn. So I'll go say hello. And that's all I planned to do. And I just went up and said, hello, my name's Richard. And she said, her name is Christy. And I just, from then, just made it a, a point to every day, just make sure I said hello to her. And eventually, 
a really surprising friendship emerged. And Christy is now a huge part of my life. I just saw her yesterday, took her shopping. Um, I see her every week. And through that relationship, I now know all these people at her assisted living facility. And so I realized, looking back over my life, just that one act of, hello, my name is Richard, uh, completely changed my life, you know, four years, you know, four years on. And so, yeah, I'm not trying to get anybody to be an extrovert, but I am trying to say, hey, say hello to somebody that maybe you're not initially drawn to and see what God can do with that. And for those of us who are introverts, we just hope they're not an extrovert because <laughs> I always say that tongue in cheek, but you know, you're right. I'm glad you mentioned the introvert extrovert thing. And, and, you know, as you're mentioning it, you're right. You didn't talk about that in the book and, and that would have been a nice helpful addition, but that, that, I don't think I have felt that you were trying to make me an extrovert. I already, maybe I'm just, you know, self-aware enough to know that, you know, I can't be one. It's just what it is, but it it's good to kind of make that distinction because switching gears on a Sunday morning or Saturday evening or whenever, you know, one worships, you know, you, you think that being outgoing, whatever that stereotype is, is sort of like the extroverted dog looking for a treat, welcoming you at the door saying, hi, hi, welcome to our service. And, and, you know, we want you to join us and we hope you're welcome here. And it just, it's just like, whoa. Um, and so for those of us who that's not our MO, we we see that as well. I can't ever become that, and so you know that, I love how you're describing all this. It just it's those simple acts of smiling, saying hello, introducing yourself, and that that can go a lot that can go a lot further than we think. And it sounds like it did for you. Yeah, and I would also add that again because I'm an introvert myself. Is that is that my my intentional approaching Christy and now being friends with Christy is actually kind of what introverts do really well. Right. They, they yeah, yeah. introverts are not they're very relational and they're very social, but they but they but they tend to focus on a few. Right. They, right. they have a few people they're comfortable with. Right. We're not hermits, per se. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so when I made this friendship with Christy, that's a classic introvert move where she became somebody that every week I would, you know, talk to and befriend and that relationship gets, gets deeper. And so when I go to my church now, I don't spend my time trying to welcome everybody goes through the door, but I do find Christy and take care of her. And, and so the, the relationality that I've, you know, that, I, that I'm demonstrating with that story is a very introverted kind of relationality. It's not the kind of person that stands at the door and welcomes everybody and talks to 40 different people, but it is the kind of really deep, relationship that introverts are really particularly good at. My point is, is that what happens even with introverts is that those deep relationships, again, tend to be focused on people who look like me. But now, through intentionally welcoming Christy into my space, now it includes somebody who normally wouldn't have been there. That, And that's my point. My point for the introvert isn't to say, you're going to do relationship differently the question is, who's in your sphere? Yeah. It might be a smaller sphere, but who's in there? Has the composition of those people changed over time? And if not, probably that's because you're on social autopilot. You're not, you're not trying to include somebody mm. um, that might be off your radar screen. And, and I think that's what set Jesus' welcome apart uh, from from many of our descriptions of hospitality. Jesus wasn't thinking about welcoming all of our best friends to a great meal and a bottle of wine. The people that Jesus welcomed to his table were really kind of unlikely people to be there. And I guess that's another temptation I like to push back against is like a lot of kind of edgier progressive Christians like to say, you know, I don't really go in for the whole church thing on Sunday morning. And so church for me is like all my good friends and a bottle of wine and good food around a big table. That's church for me. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I would say that's the most self-indulgent thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, wow, not to be yeah. too hard, no, not I, to be too harsh, yeah. but Jesus's hospitality is welcoming people to the table in a way that kind of is like, well, why is this? Why is that person here? You know, it, yeah. it, it was a, it was a trans, it was a, it was a hospitality that was kind of offensive to people. 
um, that cut, a, cut against the grain. And again, I, I'm not disparaging community with good friends. Just don't call it church. Yeah, right. Don't call it church because I do think church, at least as Paul describes it, is kind of where these walls of hostility get broken down. That was the big fight. If you look at the book of Acts and the epistles, mm-hmm. is how you're going to get these people, the Jews and the Gentiles, the slave and the free, um, you know, how are you going to get those people to become one body? And, and that's described as a wall of hostility. And it's these affectional things that we're talking about. And so, and so Jesus' table included a Levite, not a Levite, a, a, a zealot, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, those are the social justice warriors of the day, the zealots. And then on the other side, he's got the tax collectors who were collaborating with the Roman occupiers. I mean, they were part of the problem, according to the zealots. And somehow those two people were welcome to Jesus' table. And I don't think you can get two more different people on the political spectrum than the tax collectors and the zealots. Um, our problems, trying to welcome Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and everybody else, are, are minor compared to what Jesus was pulling off. Well, you liken the tax collector to a an aide to ISIS or something along those lines, because in that day, it wasn't just a matter of, of you know, an IRS employee or the equivalent of an IRS employee, but it was more of someone who uh, sided with the occupation. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a hard time emotionally getting our heads around how the Jews felt about the tax collectors. Hmm. And it's not just the tax collectors. Well, this you, audience, you don't, I don't know, maybe this audience with libertarians. They might know. <laughs> tax they might collectors, know. We already kind of get that. Tax collectors. I don't know. That's hilarious. But it, but it wasn't just tax collectors. I mean, he was, Jesus was kind to Roman centurions. I mean, literally to the enemy occupiers. And this is, you have to understand, like crosses. I'll say now you're pushing our buttons too, because we, we have a, an impulse against war. And people who sign up for war, at least some of us do. And and yeah. now 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 you're hitting on a on a topic that that would trigger us a little bit. Be like, oh, yeah. how do I love that person who uh, irritation would be a mild word there. Exactly. Yeah. So how do, how do you welcome and display hospitality given all of those very strong feelings? And and so let me say this. Uh, this is something I say at the beginning of the book, and I don't know. If if I made the point strong enough or well enough in the book, but um, I, I described this will to embrace using an idea from comedy improv. Um, and in comedy improv, there's this rule called yes and. So if you're doing a comedy improv sketch with somebody and they and they walk in and say, oh, my leg is broken, you're supposed to say yes to that. It, that is to say you affirm it. You go, well, how'd you break your leg? Like you affirm what they bring to you. It's called the offer. And you're not supposed to block it with a no. So somebody limps on stage and says, my leg's broken. You're not supposed to say in an improv, uh, no, it's not. You know, you don't block. <laughs> it's called blocking. So you're supposed to say yes, you lead with affirmation, but then you add something to it, you know. So somebody walks in and says, yo, I broke my leg. And you say, well, while were you riding that elephant? You give that right back to them and then they got to build on it. And that's kind of the joy of comedy improv was where you, these two actors are yes and and back and forth and it builds and it goes into a really unexpected direction and i use that kind of as a metaphor for hospitality where i say when when we're we're dealing with people with very and we have very strong emotions about the rightness or the wrongness of what they believe or what they are doing the will to embrace is the yes to their humanity we have to constantly fight for that yes that does not mean there's going to be an and that doesn't mean we can't fight and argue and get really, really angry with each other as we fight about things like war or taxes or whatever. But if we, but we got to lead with the yes. We we have to keep that person's humanity in view. Otherwise, these, and we've all we all know this. We've all been in interactions where um, the will to embrace is lost, and and we know that those are just not very productive debates. And I think that's one of the reasons why the internet is so toxic. Like why you can't talk about politics online because we're not dealing face-to-face with somebody we care about. And so all we do is just take shots at each other and we troll each other. And we, you know, we're passive aggressive with each other on social media. It's just not a good, it's not a good venue for a real heart to heart conversation about those things. So I think the, one of the things that, that your, your audience might agree with is like, I think some of the best debates, one of my best friends here on campus is libertarian Cole. And, uh, we fight all the time. 
about politics. You know, uh, he is always like totally shocked about how I see the world. And I am just appalled by how he sees the world sometimes. I'm like, what? (laughs) But we will sit there and fight about politics. And we both come away deeply edified. And he he has given me great food for thought over the years. But the reason why we can fight well is because we love each other. We care about each other. That is to say, we have the yes in place. We see each other. We have a friendship. And even though we're political opponents, we can fight. And I think the best political fights that we have are with our friends because we're friends. But whenever we lose that, we lose the friendship or the brotherhood or the sisterhood, and we're just fighting with a political opponent, that's when the dehumanization kicks in. And then we're just dealing with an idiot. How does this work the other way around? And I ask this because I had a coworker uh, at a previous job who, I mean, gosh, this is like four years ago. Trump wasn't even on the radar and I wasn't, I haven't been and never was a Trump supporter anyway. But, you know, that whole scenario wasn't around. And I started debating something political with her at, at, at the, uh, at work and she was new in my department and she's like, Doug, let me just stop you. I really like you. Um, but let's not talk politics cause I don't want to not like you. <laughs> so she had this, like, obviously it was important to her to maintain a friendship of, of, you know, coworker type friendship. But at the same time, she, she recognized that this could taint that. And wh- why do you think that is possible because i mean i had a lot of people at that job who were did not agree with with me on things and we got along fine and some of them not many but some of them we argued and still got along in the example that you gave yeah well i guess i mean i don't want to be too pious with i'm about to say but was she a christian uh no yeah and and i would say then she what resources does she have hmm spiritually, religiously, morally? What resources does she have um, to love uh, unconditionally? That even if you have a political opinion that she has, she feels is outrageous. You know, I think I think today, I think the, the three to four year relationship that we developed over the course of our working together would have would have made that enough. So that, you know, uh-huh. like if I, if we didn't talk politics at all for four years and then all of a sudden we started talking it, I think that would have helped. But that, that's that, that, at that point, we were relatively new to each other. So it was more of that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and, and so consequently, because you don't have that affectional connection, all she has to filter you through is your political views. And mm-hmm. if she has very strong political views, then, then you're the enemy. You know, you're mm-hmm. one of these outrage. You're one of the deplorables. And, and I... <laughs> And I mean that for yeah. both the left and the right. Like yeah, the yeah. left, the left has their deplorables, and the right has their deplorables. I mean, everybody—that's the whole emotion of contempt. They're, mm, you know, yeah. everybody's deplorable some way or another. And and so without, so it's again back to that kind of yes and idea. If she doesn't have that yes there first, that will to embrace first. Then all she's got is um, one of these outrageous people is actually you know working next to me. And 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 with that come all of the feelings that we have. But again, and and again, I'm not saying that like, you know, non-Christians can't, you know, be hospitable or love. I'm I'm just saying that one of the the beauties of a Christian perspective is that you do have this Jesus in your life calling you to love your enemy. Like, Like, he's there kind of haunting the back of your mind so that whenever you're kind of like really getting good, good at hating somebody, you know, you're, he's bumping into that. And that, again, is provides a, a resource, a moral, spiritual resource to kind of push back on those feelings and say, I need to transcend that. I need to find something in this person that I can love and embrace and, and, and resist this kind of tide of dehumanization that's going on right here in my own heart. Yeah. And so, I'm not saying Jesus is the only resource for that. I'm just saying if you don't have that resource, you're going to see the polarization we have in America. What? Why should you love a Democrat? You know, if you're a libertarian, or why should a Democrat love a libertarian or Republican? And the answer is, if you don't have any sort of metaphysical view of why you should, then, then I think Nietzsche has it right. Then life just becomes a will to power. Mm. It, it becomes winning the next election because that's all there is. You know, that's all there is is winning, and and a huge and a huge group of people that are in your way. Yeah. 
Well, why do, then why do, if we have, okay, so we have the humanity first, if we've found that, um, and, you know, we did an episode of the week of Thanksgiving with uh, a guy who I find very good at having these kind of conversations and without letting, uh, you know, debatable co- uh, conversations escalate. So we talked about how to have a good Thanksgiving meal with family in a political environment where everybody is highly opinionated. And, you know, the word deplorables is not necessarily on our tongue, but it's in the back of our mind. So when, you know, you, you have Thanksgiving meal with dad or grandpa, who is an ardent pick the opponent supporter. Why isn't the humanity that we see in dear old grandpa, why do we get triggered? Like, what is it, what is it that's going on that, that triggers us to now make grandpa the enemy, even though grandpa's been our dear old grandpa for all of our lives kind of experience? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, well, that's a really deep question. Um, you're I mean, welcome. I, think, you're welcome. I got all the time yeah. I need. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and it's hard because you and I are just trapped by our own you know, generation. So, so it's hard to, it's hard to say whether or not the degree of polarization and alienation we're feeling in our political discourse is somehow getting worse. That That's kind of the narrative we like to hear. It's always getting worse. But, you know, if you look back during the Vietnam era with the protests going on back then, it seemed, things seemed really even worse back then. Yeah. Um, with riots in the streets and things like that. So I, I, I want to resist the feeling that somehow we're in a different mm-hmm. era and that we're like more more divided than we've ever been. I, I, I think we've always been divided in many ways, and sometimes it's better, and sometimes it's worse. Yeah. But but that said, I, I do think there's been a lot of scholars that have been arguing that that our imaginations, and I said this earlier in the podcast, that it does seem like kind of the kind of liberal, and I mean little little L liberal right. in the sense that Western democracies are liberal, that the liberal project is fueling two seemingly paradoxical impulses. And um, I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about this and what your yeah. audience says about this. But one is kind of increasing autonomy and freedom and individualism on the one hand. And so we're getting more emancipated as but on the other hand, the state is also increasing its power. So we seem to have two paradoxical things happening at the same time, which is increased individualism and freedom, and yet an increasingly dominant and intrusive state that individuals feel like is getting – like either it's out of control or we can't control it. I think individuals are increasingly feeling helpless about this apparatus called the state. And so there's nothing in between that between the individual and the state and so it's like the state just looms large in our imaginations and since that's the it seems to be that it's the only it's the only game in town it it, yeah. it matters it matters more um because all of the, right. what, what, the all the mediating institutions of civic life the at the local and the city level all of the other structures that kind of held and bound us together all of those have evaporated and so now it's just me and the state, and then so I got a bandwidth as as many people, like-minded people, to win a majority to get the state to do what I want the state to do. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think libertarians would resonate with this because for any of the social ills facing us, what's the answer? And increasingly, the answer is Congress, you know, or the president, or the state government, depending, yeah, or the state, right? Exactly. That's that's the only lever we have to pull anymore. And because that's the only lever we have to pull anymore, I think the stakes have been raised politically in a way that's that's uh, fracturing us. Yeah. Have you read Have you read the Quest for Community by uh, Robert Nisbet? No, I have not. He elaborates a lot on what you kind of mentioned is that there were a lot of, you briefly mentioned it, I think, is that there were a lot of, and we're increasingly, we're seeing a decrease in the number of these kinds of things. Although I think the internet and um, apps on our phones and that kind of phenomenon might increase this again, that you had institutions that were binding uh, in the sense, I'm sorry, I should say that they were bonding. They were bonding institutions. You have things like uh, Eagles and uh, Knights of Columbus, and I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of them out there that united people in communities where they would serve one another. And I'm, I'm not, I'm drawing a blank on the name of those types of communities, but there are groups that bound us together. And the church was some of it, even if people were just nominally church attenders, you know, 80 years ago. 
they they had an affinity for the people who were also members of that church, even if they weren't, you know, you know, hardcore Jesus followers, you know, what we would kind of identify as the sincere Christian, whatever that means. We had community elements, and those began to dissolve away with the state rising. And, you know, to some extent, we would say that the focus on individualism, where we all become a lot more autonomous because we can, because, you know, whether it's because of opportunity or whether it's because um, it's just the, the direction, the zeitgeist of being a little bit more autonomous in our culture, that has influenced where maybe maybe there's a void, you know, uh, to some extent where the state or people who care seek out the state and say, wow, we, we got to have, you know... Uh, we got to have this program to help so and so. You know, uh, one of one of the things that libertarians and just to, to bring up something like social welfare and so forth. You know, one of the things that libertarians often talk about with respect to the programs like the Great Society is that the the decline in poverty was was already happening, and then we had the war on poverty, and it just kept declining. And we we often will joke that it's sort of like getting out in front of a parade and saying, "Look at them, they're following me." <laughs> and so uh, the state sometimes comes in. And continues the march, if you will, and then we often will have, hey, look, look at the success. And it people don't have a, a represent. I just say it this way: people don't have uh, an incentive to jump back in if if they don't need to. I really like your call to progressive Christians in your book, Reviving Old Scratch, to really rethink their commitment to church life and kingdom life, and to re-embrace the the wording of of the devil and calling the devil the devil not being afraid of that and I also appreciate the, the 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 concept here in stranger god because it is literally a hands-on approach and you take an individual approach like hey i'm just gonna be good old introvert richard beck and i'm gonna say hi to christy and i'm gonna see where that takes me and i'm gonna say hi or say yes to uh all these other situations so i i don't know if that's much of an answer that's just off me off the cuff i'm sure in about two days i'll have this great email to you or something and, and be like hey here's the answer to your question but that, those are just some thoughts off the top of my head uh to to that phenomenon but you are right there is a an impulse to look to the state uh to solve problems, and there, there's a number of reasons why I'm sure, and and I don't even know what all of them are. Yeah, and I, so yeah, I, but I think your diagnosis is right that those middle institutions, um, like the church uh, or the you know other local civic organizations that kind of bonded communities together, those have those have completely you know evaporated now. We're more atomized, and and so la- lacking any sort of local infrastructure to solve our problems. Um, we look, we look, you know, to the federal government to pass a law, but a lot of our problems, I think, as 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 we've mentioned, can't be solved with policies. Um, like I think about, you know, the police shootings and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. and and what, or even Occupy Wall Street. Um, so, kind of two recent protest movements. And what's interesting about both of those movements is that has struck people is the lack of policy recommendations. You know, people get frustrated. Like, well, what do you want to see? Like, what do you want to see changed? And um, both don't tend to have very concrete policies. Like, the only thing I heard debated, you know, in the in the rise of the police shootings was um, mandatory cameras. You know, having police have mandatory cameras. Which is great, but that doesn't solve the racial aspect of that, right? A camera on somebody doesn't change systemic racism. So where is that going to be dealt with? You know, Congress can't pass a law that's going to eradicate those biases and the tensions that exist between um, urban black populations and the police that that ride into those situations. There could be, just to give an example there or add something to it for you, is you could... Congress or the state legislatures could eliminate the laws or legalize the ability for citizens to record. Um, Andrew Napolitano, uh, I don't know if you if you know who he is, he's a, a guest on Fox Business and Fox, although they didn't like him for a while, so they kicked him off. But he, uh, he often said that the camera is the new gun in terms of protecting our rights, and it can be a great way to um, capture... A violation of rights and so whether or not making a camera mandatory for an officer while that might solve the problem or help contribute to relieving issues um 
there's a lot there are a lot of things that you can't we can't record without someone's permission and the police if the police knew that it was illegal to take a camera from somebody now i realize there's a whole bunch of complications with with just a blanket statement there but if they were unable to uh, just take a camera from somebody, then they they might be less likely to infringe on on someone's rights, especially if they're peaceful things like peaceful protesting. Oh yeah, and and, and, we, and I think that's where a pragmatic approach to policy debates is interesting, where we can debate a wide variety of ways to solve a problem from a policy. What's like is that a you know is that might be one lever to pull to create a better outcome than putting cameras on police or baby or do both or whatever. My, my point is, is that even if you do that, even if you just get the most optimal policy, you still haven't solved the spiritual rot of racism. That's, that's the point I'm driving at. Yeah. You know, you might, you might create a situation where the policy is at, at its optimal, but if the human heart is still corrupt there's no policy that's going to penetrate into that. And so if that matters to you, and it doesn't matter to everybody, but as a Christian, the state of your heart and the heart of your church should matter to you, then what are you going to do to change it? How are you going to change it? Um, how are you going to fight it? And I think the only way to fight it isn't to like make the government fight it. It's to fight it in your own heart. Fight your own local battle to welcome the God to, who comes to you in very surprising ways and in demographic groups and in social groups and in economic groups um, that uh, you don't typically have warm feelings towards. And the only way that's going to happen is through like these disciplined practices like the little way where you intentionally seek out difference and welcome it into your sphere of affection. Richard, thanks for being with us today. This has been, this has been an an amazing conversation, and I don't think I have anything to wrap up with after what you just said there. That was a very good summary. I do have one request for your for your next book. Okay. If you mention people who are at odds with one another, could you please say Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians? All right, I'll <laughs> do it. We're, we're kind of left out sometimes, and uh, some people do. I'm just I'm, I'm messing with you a little bit, but uh, it, it'd be nice to include us in your in your circle now that you've you've been a guest on our podcast. You'd be like, all right, well, libertarians are at odds with Republicans and Democrats and progressives and whatever. I can come up with whatever you want. Makes it more interesting having three, like another. Yeah, I, I do think we need a more diverse policy debate in our in our country rather than the two party thing. I so I do think. Um, the diversity there is really important. So thanks for contributing to that. Yeah. Well, thank you again for being a guest. You got it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and you can also visit our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.